the, the woman that was cutting my hair was farming on pancake. We were both in the same auto. No. Yes. No. Yes. That happened. Oh she's, my. She's farming on pancake while cutting my hair. The Doge Maximal. I look like. I mean, I mean. I want to go to one of those meetups. Right after that conversation, I rushed home and bought some Ethereum Classic. And, 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 and I'm glad I didn't hold it, Jason. Oh, yeah. I, I bought some shares four years ago. And then someone was, oh, man, old school. Wow. All the way back. Then. Oh, yeah, man. Way back in the 2017. What's up, guys? Doug Polk here, and welcome back for another episode of the Doug Polk Podcast. Today, we are joined by Riot Blockchain CEO Jason Les, a very close friend of mine. We actually worked on Heads Up No Limit together back in the day, and now he joins us to talk about Bitcoin. This episode is going to be a little bit different than some of the episodes that we've had in the past, and I want to talk about a few things before we jump into it with Jason. First off, Jason specializes in Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. So we're going to keep the pod very Bitcoin centric today. Down the road, I do want to bring in some people to talk about some other currencies and what's happening in the space. But I really want to ask my guests questions about things they're very knowledgeable in. And this guy knows Bitcoin. So we're going to have a very Bitcoin focused discussion to try, I try and push back a little bit on some of the things he talks about Bitcoin. But we're going to get deep into the weeds on Bitcoin and what's happening in that community. We're going to talk about some of the environmental complaints and narratives that we've seen the media run with in recent times. A little bit about Elon Musk and some of the things that he's said about Bitcoin. And then we're also going to talk about Bitcoin mining alleviating some of the questions and concerns about it, as well as this recent China ban, sort of the state of Bitcoin within the cryptocurrency community. We're going to talk about all kinds of different Bitcoin topics today. I think if you enjoy Bitcoin or hearing about Bitcoin, this will be fantastic for you. I want to talk a little bit about here on this podcast, the tone of what we're doing today versus some of the other podcasts. And I want to, I want to start off with this. Basically, I know a lot about poker. If someone said, Doug, in this turn situation, I had to be a limit. You're supposed to bet. And I look at it and I say, no, you're not supposed to bet. I'm going to passionately argue my side because I frankly am very confident that I'm correct. With cryptocurrency, it's not the same. I'm not the expert like I am in poker. And I think one of the reasons in the past when I do content around cryptocurrency, I feel a little bit less strong about it or I feel like I might be trying to I might be pretending to be someone I'm not is I don't want to come across like I'm some kind of expert in a field that I'm frankly not. I've been fortunate to be involved in this space early on. It wasn't that I essentially thought that this was the future of technology or something. I just kind of stumbled into it and I've been pretty connected within that world for some time. So I enjoy cryptocurrency. I enjoy the subject. I enjoy talking about it. I think that it's it's really is the future of money in many ways. And I want to have discussions with people that know a lot about it and I also find interesting. So when I'm talking with my guests, it's going to be a little more inquisitive and a little more trying to get their understanding of, of what they think rather than in some of the poker podcasts where it's a bit more of a back and forth where we both may have strong opinions on something. Of course, I do have my own opinions about Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything else happening in the space, but I try not to let that be as strong as a part of the podcast because I'm also aware that that's not where my main focus has been, especially over the last few years. So I just want you to know that when we have podcasts like the one today, it's going to be a little bit more in the inquisitive format when I bring on guests to talk to them and just understand that that's kind of where I'm coming from uh, from that perspective. Also, I'm a big believer in 
many currencies are going to win out here. I think Ethereum is fantastic. I think that Bitcoin is amazing. I, I like a lot of the bigger ones. I think that a lot of the smaller projects can have promise as well. For me, it kind of boils down to this. I'm not someone that just thinks that the first thing has to be the correct one and that Bitcoin is the ultimate currency, right? Bitcoin is a store of value. It's the best store of value and it is uniquely situated as the biggest currency. But I think a lot of the smaller ones can have their own purpose that they succeed in as well. And so I think that having an open eye for all of these things is important. I also think that you you should avoid trying to you know hate on certain coins because they're not the one that you like or you have your thing and, and you don't like that one because you don't own it. I think that trying to bring more people into the space and give it a uh, better understanding to the common man, I think that's important with, with cryptocurrency. And part of what I'm trying to do here is bring our audience in a little bit more towards understanding these types of things like how Bitcoin works. I also want to say that if you're a poker player that follows this podcast, I know we have a, a, a little bit of a hodgepodge of, of interest here. And, and I think that they have a nice intersection around making money. Poker, you're making money. Uh, gambling involves making money, hopefully. Uh, crypto involves making money, hopefully. Uh, maybe the pursuit of making money. Uh, but I understand that also a lot of people are, are probably less interested in subjects like this one. So the bottom line here is it's important for me to have a podcast that I think is true to myself and is true to the content that I want to produce and am interested in. And so that means if you are someone that really enjoys the cryptocurrency stuff, then you tune in for ones like this and you avoid the ones where I talk about poker. Or likewise, if you're really into poker and you don't care for this stuff, that's fine too. I just want to create a community of sort of people that are interested in the things that I'd like to discuss and talk about and learn about. And uh, I think that there is some nice intersection there. Maybe we can find some people that especially blend into that uh, middling area between both of them. But the reality is sometimes we're going to be talking about these different subjects. And if you're not interested, that's totally cool too. Finally, before we jump in and talk to Jason, I want to talk about this podcast a little bit. Uh, I've been really enjoying making these episodes so far. We've had a lot of great guests and I'm looking forward to continuing to make the content as far as the posting schedule goes, I think I'm going to keep it pretty flexible. Originally, I was thinking about maybe posting it every, for example, Monday. But I think the flexibility of just shooting these uh, as I find good guests and then posting them once the editing is done is a nice way to do it. So the game plan is going to be about a podcast a week. If we can get some great guests, maybe we'll do more. Uh, but, you know, we're going to keep it around once a week or so. Most likely posting uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday type time period. But again, I don't really want to set out an exact schedule. You guys can just make sure to subscribe and follow and you'll know when these do go live. So if you haven't, make sure to go and do that now. Also, we're going to get some quality of life improvements here on the podcast pretty soon. You can see I've got this audio foam coming in on the side. I think it's helping out some of the audio uh, quality. I have a bunch of new audio stuff coming in as well, new microphone, new sound system and everything. So you can really get that crisp, clean sound of my voice. I, I know you guys want to hear it in its full HD quality. So we're going to be getting that. Also, my my camera, the, the 4K camera should be set up relatively soon. A lot of improvements coming in. And thank you guys for bearing with me while we've gotten up to speed. I know my mic was a little echoey out of the gate, but we're going to keep improving it. We're going to keep getting better. And eventually, this is going to be some real true podcast sound because I know an increasing number of you guys are listening on those podcast platforms, which is cool to see, by the way. Uh, I think that uh, out of the gate, a lot of people were listening on YouTube and we're seeing a bit more of a shift towards Spotify, iTunes, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, if you're new to the podcast, uh, today will be our, our first 
journey into the uh, Bitcoin world of discussion of cryptocurrency and that kind of stuff. So uh, thank you for joining us today. And let's go ahead and jump into my conversation with Jason Les. We are now joined by Heads Up No Limit Crusher, CEO of a multi-billion dollar... Wait, hold on, let me check. Yes, yes, a multi-billion dollar company and a very close personal friend of mine, Jason Les joins the pod. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Doug. Funny how, uh, funny how our lives change together. They, they do. I had to check share price real quick, just, just, okay. to, make, just to make sure we were still multi-billion. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, so thanks for joining today. And uh, it's good to talk about some cryptocurrency stuff, especially kind of a more Bitcoin-focused podcast here today. I know we've done a lot of poker stuff here on the pod. So for you crypto fans, I'm sure that there are some people that are, that are ready for this. I kind of wanted to keep today's conversation geared more around Bitcoin. Obviously, that's sort of what you're most focused on with Riot. And I think just in general, I mean, I think back to our conversations before you were um, you had moved up in, in Riot, even before you joined Riot, I think you were always most interested in Bitcoin. That was kind of your focus. So I think it's a, a good starting place to, or you're a good person to talk about some of the things happening with Bitcoin and a lot of the different stories about Bitcoin that are going around today, as well as maybe clear up some things about uh, mining and um, you know what happened with China, some proof of work, risk proof of stake stuff. So a lot of great topics here today, and I'm excited to get into it. Me too. Yep. All right. Nice. Good start. Okay. So here we go. So <laughs> let's just talk about kind of Bitcoin over the last, uh, we can really talk six to 12 months. It's followed the same essentially pattern that I think a lot of the currencies have had. It, it had a massive surge running up all the way to 65,000. And then uh, of course has fallen back down into the low thirties. Uh, so, you know, it's funny because Bitcoin, because it's such a, a large percentage of the total market, it, I feel what happens to Bitcoin so directly affects everything else um, because it's just a, such such a large percentage of the entire market. Do you see Bitcoin's market dominance kind of increasing over time? Do you think it's going to decrease over time? What are your thoughts on essentially Bitcoin's role in terms of how much of a cryptocurrency, the cryptocurrency ecosystem that it is? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting to look at how Bitcoin dominance has fluctuated over time. Um, I think when we lasted our podcast together uh, a little, little over three years ago, so we're a little overdue, but a little over three years ago, I think at that point, it was a real low for Bitcoin dominance because it was a real altcoin ICO hype uh, cycle. Yeah, I, I, I only invite you on when the altcoins are, are popping up, so I, I see how it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, and so that, that number, I think, hit a new low around there. If I recall, it might have gone as low as like 28%. And then as the market went um, through an adjustment period again over the rest of 18, 19, uh, 20, uh, that changed quite a bit. And uh, Bitcoin dominance kind of rose back up again. And now we're seeing another, uh, I think, similar cycle take place. So, you know, I, I, I think in the... I still really believe we're in the infancy of this industry, uh, of this whole space. And as a result, there's still lots of things that are coming out there, things that are competing with Bitcoin and maybe things not trying to compete with Bitcoin. Um, and that, you know, as more projects introduced, if there's interest in them, that eats into that Bitcoin dominance factor. But I, I, I've kind of, you know, to be honest, over the recent years, I've, I've just kind of stopped tracking that figure too much because I, I guess I got to this point in my experience in the space where, I just became so solidified in Bitcoin, my belief in Bitcoin, what 
I look at the future with Bitcoin, um, what that future looked like, that I just kind of narrowed in my focus and um, stopped following, I think, a lot of, uh, you know, I, I just tuned out a lot of the noise that we were seeing. I, I, I think ultimately what Bitcoin is doing is it, it is a store value application. And I think there's a lot more you can do with Bitcoin than that. I think Bitcoin is a um, financial platform that can unlock all sorts of you know, different features and functionality. But at this point, people are using Bitcoin as um, a medium of exchange. And, but I, I think what we're, we're kind of in this you know, institutional adoption phase of Bitcoin where people are looking at it, institutions are looking at it as a store of value specifically. So it doesn't need to do much to have a store of value. It's just have the security properties that you're looking for, the sound money properties that you're looking for. And I, I don't see too many other, I don't, I should say, I don't see any really other cryptocurrencies competing with Bitcoin on that. I think a lot of other cryptocurrencies try to introduce other features and um, compete on maybe different levels. So kind of long-winded way of getting back to your uh, question, which is I, I, I think Bitcoin is dominating the store value narrative. And that figure on Bitcoin dominance, I, I, I think it's, you know, to me, it's kind of fallen off to just be noise. Fair take. I do feel like Bitcoin is getting attacked on more sides than I think that it used to. Mm -hmm. When I think about the way that Bitcoin was viewed in sort of the early days of altcoins, even people that liked altcoins liked Bitcoin. I think that they were typically more, with the exception of the, the Bitcoin cash fork when that went down, I think that a lot of people just kind of supported both and had both and were believers in Bitcoin as well. I, I think that in recent times, I've seen more of a shift away from that, where the ETH maximalists, most specifically, and I'm sure there are many other people that fall into the Doge guys. Uh, the I, Doge maximalists. I, I, look like, I, mean, I, mean, I want to go to one of those meetups. I, I, I'm sure everyone's everyone's looking pretty sweet with their shades on. But it's, uh, I, it's a little different now. And I think that there are a lot of people that don't have such a pro-Bitcoin stance, or maybe they don't even own Bitcoin. Uh, and I also think that there are a lot of things working against Bitcoin. The the price has increased so dramatically. I actually remember quite early on, one of the first things that I liked about Bitcoin was how cheap it was to transfer to people. And I remember in the forums and talking to people, oh man, banks charge you $25 to wire. What a scam. Can you imagine? And then when Bitcoin price got up to 60000 and sometimes when the network was more congested, all of a sudden, $200 is looking like a thing for Bitcoin too. It's not so so crazy, so far-fetched to, to be at that price point. So there were a lot of different sides that Bitcoin is kind of getting attacked from. And I, I guess my, my real question here is, do you think that this detracts from Bitcoin's ability to grow? Do you think maybe if these currencies are gaining on Bitcoin at a rapid pace that Bitcoin will, will probably still be fine, but does it, does it hurt its ability to continue to be the to continue to be such a store of value if other currencies seem like they're picking up the slack and 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 gaining on it? Or, or do you just think that it's completely separate? I, I guess I, I kind of look at it as separate because I think Bitcoin is very valuable for the properties that it has. And these other cryptocurrencies do not share those properties. Um, and that, that's uh, honestly kind of the reason is, is they weren't exactly first. So Bitcoin was in a sense, first. 
And that was a totally fair launch. You know, it was released in such a way where there was no pre-mine and it was an open system worth worth nothing. And it ha- it's had this, this tremendous organic growth from nothing to a, you know, peaking at what, $800 billion market cap or whatever the peak was in this past spring. And that type of network effect, this type of organic growth of, um, of of adoption of Bitcoin, of ownership of Bitcoin, of the development community around Bitcoin, that is very, very valuable. It's kind of like, it, it kind of like, okay, you know, we can launch a, something competing Twitter, right? Oh, okay, we're going to launch Twitter, but you can edit tweets. All right? I mean, is, is that going to just take over Twitter? Like you could just say, hey, it has this one feature that's better. And, but you can't, you can't replace or that organic growth is so invaluable. So I, I guess the way that I'm looking at it here is um, the, 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 the introduction of new, pro, of new projects, um, other kind of noise coming around. It, it's not, it, it doesn't take away from those properties. It might detract, it might distract people. It might get people going under other, other directions, but I think ultimately um Markets are efficient. I think eventually adoption uh, reverts back to where, where the, the uh, most value is, where the actual value is, I think, with the store value narrative. But, you know, I hadn't really thought about the points you made at the start there, which is interesting that you're right. It used to kind of be, OK, we all own Bitcoin. And then there were some people that were just like really into altcoins, too. And now there's people that are just like, forget Bitcoin, you know. I'm a Doge maximalist. Uh, I think what is, you know, uh, our, our friend Derek was telling me like his friends are calling Bitcoin like boomer coin or something like that. I'm like, how, how did we get here? Honestly, and- I, I've played a lot of CS with some younger people and and I've heard boomer coin from them. Too. I mean, they call me a boomer, though. So that's but yeah, it's the there's a bunch of things about it. First off, it's the oldest. Right. Yeah. So the the, the code itself, it, it's you know, the, the least advanced, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say least advanced, but you know what I'm saying? It's the oldest written code to start with. Right. Um, and then also the, it, it wasn't trying to outdo other currencies when it was made. It was trying to be the first, it was trying to be secure. It was trying to, whereas people saw Bitcoin and thought, okay, now what can I do that's better or different or, or what trade-offs can I make? And so when you're the first, you, you get this big advantage of being the first mover which is which is really Bitcoin's big advantage is that it's the first mover and there's stability there. Uh, but the trade-off is people get to see what what you did and then try to make improvements that, in theory, you can't really compete with. And I think the the example of that, not in the sort of value sense, but with Ethereum smart contracts, I I hear people like Jimmy Song when we were all hanging out the other day. He mm-hmm. was talking about uh, you know the the development you can do on Bitcoin and. You know, you could do smart contracts with Bitcoin, I, I believe is what, what he was talking about. And while that might be true, that's not really where the development for smart the developers for smart contracts are working, right? They're mainly working on Ethereum. They're mainly working on these other uh, these mm-hmm. other projects. So you trade off that first mover advantage with sort of a like sort of a tech disadvantage in a way. Uh, and I'm not trying to make Bitcoin sound inferior, right? Because of course you have the security of of Bitcoin. And the stability of Bitcoin, the store value of Bitcoin, but it's not as advanced. Would you say that's fair? Well, what I would say is, you know, the Bitcoin development community has this ethos that is very, like you said, security focused. 
I think in Bitcoin development, the idea is the stakes are so high here that we cannot afford to take any risks. So Bitcoin developers um, are thinking, core developers and anyone else working on, on the project, they're thinking decades in advance of incentive structures and all these attack vectors. And I think being the, the, the standard in cryptocurrencies, being the first, you, you kind of have that responsibility. And these other coins, like you said, they're drawing their value by competing directly with Bitcoin. It's not like these projects launched in isolation from each other. Um, Ethereum was launched. I think Vitalik's story is, hey, they wouldn't, you know, the Bitcoin core wasn't introducing the features that I wanted into, into Bitcoin to do uh, the type of smart contract system I want to do. So I, you know, release my own thing. And Ethereum, many other coins, they're very focused on it. We're better than Bitcoin because of this. So it's like, um, it's a they are competing in a marketing game that Bitcoin isn't because it was first. So with the with the ethos of Bitcoin development around being safe, um, that's very stark contrast to I think Ethereum and other projects where it is a this is kind of an overstatement, but move fast and break things. Like that that's kind of what the idea was at Facebook, particularly with. Um, their development community and what they were introducing in that platform as it grew. They said, move fast and break things. And well, things broke. Uh, Facebook is still around. <laughs> you know, it's not like that was a failed project. But when it comes to money, when it comes to store value, especially something like uh, Bitcoin, where you're giving users total control over, over their wealth, there, there's no one there to save you. It's all you. It's, it, I think it's very important to be cautious. So I think with Bitcoin, the, the, this type of functionality that you see with other cryptocurrencies is rolled out, but it's a lot slower. I, I think a lot of people also don't under, uh, discount how much development work is done around Bitcoin. You're right. Um, kind of the original system was introduced and there's been improvements since there. But like you're right, the, the core system was written uh, in the end of 2008, re- released at the start of 2009. Um, but there's been a lot, a lot of improvements on that. And I've talked to kind of new people to the industry and they, they actually don't even know that they're like, oh, we just thought Bitcoin was written and released and that was it. And then there's been nothing. No, I mean, there's incredibly talented people working on there. These updates just move slowly because it, there's just so much more caution about what's being introduced. And I, I, I think uh, a good example of this is the recent activation introduction, introduction of Taproot. Taproot's a collection of upgrades to Bitcoin that uh, enable some additional features. It's not like, you know, some, it's not like, okay, now Bitcoin can do everything Ethereum is. Ethereum made certain design choices that uh, allowed it to move a bit faster in that area. But I think this is kind of a, I guess the way I would look at it is a slow and steady wins the race situation. Makes sense to me. Can you expand a little bit on the, the development of Bitcoin? I guess I want to be a little more focused sort of on a rough idea of how many people are working on the development of Bitcoin. You mentioned Taproot. Obviously, we have Lightning Network, uh, SegWit, which happened uh, a few years back. So there are certainly things happening from a development standpoint with Bitcoin. But one thing that I hear from a lot of uh, Ethereum supporters is that the amount of people working on Bitcoin compared to Ethereum, it's just a small number and they're working on things that are not that important compared to the number of people that are that are developing Ethereum. Now, I am not a dev. I do not follow the dev scene. I don't know how many devs are where, who has which devs. I, I honestly, no clue. But are you are you plugged in enough to sort of know what the development community 
is like for Bitcoin versus Ethereum? Is that a fair complaint from people on the Ethereum side of the aisle? Or is that just something that you think is just kind of being thrown around as sort of a buzzword type situation? Well, I'm not as plugged in as well as I used to be, you know, as well as I'd like, I should say, you know, back in the day, I was I was very eager to uh, try to become a Bitcoin core contributor. I took Jimmy Song's Bitcoin uh, programming Bitcoin class and I was all fired up. I'm like, here I am. I'm the next event. I'm the next inventor of Bitcoin here. Not inventor of Bitcoin, but next. like major Bitcoin. You're, you're, you're no Craig Wright, Jason. Yeah, I'm no Craig Wright. Yeah, OK. Um, so I was all fired up, but uh, I, I have not been as in touch with development over the recent couple of years as I would like. But I think it when the Ethereum community compares the development community and Bitcoin, there's kind of two things here. There's one, the people developing applications on top of these systems. So people developing Ethereum applications or people developing Bitcoin applications, uh, software services interacting with the Bitcoin network. And then there's those that are working on the fundamental protocol itself. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you how many people work on the Ethereum protocol. I, I honestly just don't, don't, don't follow that. But with Bitcoin, there are close to 200 contributors uh, to Bitcoin Core. Uh, there's more people trying to become contributors all the time. It's a very open development community. Uh, you can, you know, there's open meetings, there's GitHub. Uh, everyone is is able to submit projects for criticism. And I say criticism because there are some extremely talented and smart people working on Bitcoin. And it, it, that's kind of rubbed people. Some people, I think that come to Bitcoin development with a huge ego, uh, they oftentimes you find these guys launching these Alcoin projects because they don't like how their idea was re- was received. But hey, listen, it's not, you know, we're not making a video game here. We're, we're trying to make the new world reserve currency. So the stakes are high. And if you're going to try to make a change to it, you're going to get criticism from some very talented and smart people. Then I actually think the development community around Bitcoin is a real uh, less understood value driver. Than, than people realize. There are um, such incredibly smart minds focused on Bitcoin, thinking about it all the time, focused on you know gaming out possible attack vectors, possible changes to improve Bitcoin, what the attack vectors would be on those changes, et cetera. And that gives me a lot of assurance on its security as well, is the number of eyes that are working on this project, the number of scrutiny, the amount of scrutiny, I should say, that every single little change goes through before it gets introduced is um, you know, a very important property. So there, there, are, there are quite a lot of people working on the Bitcoin protocol itself. Now, because Ethereum has this, uh, I think, much more open scripting language, you're going to find people all over the place, you know, building poker sites, building this application, building that app, everyone, you know, is working at that. That's not the same as a protocol developer, but, you know, those are eyes, those are developers working relative to the system. Oh, that's cool. I, I haven't thought about it in the working on the protocol versus working on applications on that layer. And maybe that's part of the sort of the numbers that are being thrown in there. Yeah. And at some point I'm, I'm going to get uh, at least one or two Ethereum guys on here to discuss sort of some Ethereum thoughts. And it's, it does, it's not inherently a competition, but, but it also, it is a little bit just because of, of the status of these two currencies in the space. Obviously they're trying to do very different things, but 
you can sort of feel that there is a bit of a competition between between those two currencies and sort of their role within within the the ecosystem. Um, it, 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 it's oh, it's funny. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it's funny. Like think about how this space in general has so many critics and detractors all over the place. And it, it really is still a minority of the world that's fighting to introduce this new way of thinking about money, this new way of uh, transacting and, and using the internet for commerce. And within that community, there are people that are just like, you are absolutely wrong and you are absolutely wrong. And I understand that, you know, in a way, maybe I, I, I'm kind of like that too. I, I'm not that, that hardcore about it. You know, I'm pretty just content. I believe with what I believe and I'm, and I'm moving forward with, with Bitcoin. But it's funny how you can have so much infighting within something that it, it in of itself is a new and novel concept. I remember being at a coffee shop with you in Vancouver. I, I forget if it was 2016 or 17 or whatever year it was. And you were explaining to me your thoughts on the ETH the Ethereum versus Ethereum classic situation and what happened and what you thought you thought should happen. And right after that conversation, I rushed home and bought some Ethereum classic <laughs> and, and, and I'm glad I didn't hold it, Jason, because that didn't, that didn't go nearly as well as Ethereum. Did. <laughs> so I just bought Bitcoin, I guess. <laughs> Would have worked out good too. I have, a, I have a bunch of different questions I wanted to ask you here. So sure. on some of the things that you said, but I want to go back to talking about the smart contracts on Bitcoin because that's something that I hear talked about some. And, and I guess my question here is, is it actually realistic to have smart co- contracts on Bitcoin? Or is this one of those things where, you know, I, I obviously Jimmy Song's a great guy. He's a very smart dude, but he's, he is the, the Bitcoin bull or one, mm-hmm. one of the main Bitcoin bulls. And when he says, for example, we, can, we, we do have smart contracts on Bitcoin. Is that the kind of thing that you throw in as sort of when you're checking out online, you're doing an online purchase and it has all these little dashes and does this and does that. And you're, it's all these little, oh, and we have a smart contract. Just throw it in there. Is it actually a reasonable thing to, to use smart contracts on Bitcoin? Is that something that is coming or is that just the kind of thing that you say, but the reality is you're going to use Ethereum for smart contracts? Um, I, I, I guess it, maybe some people have different definitions of smart contracts, but first and foremost, Bitcoin in itself, these transactions are a scripting language. A transaction is the result of a certain type of script being written. A transaction is a smart contract. It does not have, now that base scripting language in Bitcoin does not have the same functionality that Ethereum has for its base, but um, that, that is a smart contract. And then, you know, take that another step the Lightning Network. Um, surprise a lot of people, I think, think the Lightning Network is under development. It is here and functioning well. I went to a Bitcoin meetup not too long ago, and we we're buying you know, burgers with Lightning at this uh, restaurant that decided to start accepting it. Um, it's not super widely used yet, but the, 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 the functionality of creating a Lightning ch- channel and spending uh, Bitcoin through Lightning, that is a smart contract itself. And there's more people working on projects. When uh, we were together the other week, I talked a little bit about uh, those guys at Atomic Loans. Atomic Loans, they are, uh, you know, introducing new, uh, I think, very cool products on top of uh, the Bitcoin protocol itself. So this stuff is here and it is growing. And Taproot itself unlocks even actually more functionality. It's just more of an iterative process instead of like, hey, here's the whole buffet, do whatever you want, because that, that can sometimes uh, lead to complications. And uh, I, I think we've seen this now. 
you know, I, I understand that there's a big development community around Ethereum. There's lots of projects. You know, how secure it's going to be is going to really depend on the amount of talent and effort that's put into the security uh, properties of whatever type of application. But there are, you know, hackings of these different things pretty regularly now. Once again, generally smaller projects. Um, and, I, and I think the scale of those, uh, those hackings has slowed down. You probably remember during like the 2017 ICO boom, there was like crazier, like big stuff that was happening. Was it that, um, I oh God, I forget the name of it now. There, there was like a $300 million hack of some smart contract, whatever. I can't remember it now, but um, I, I just you know mentioned this to illustrate when you kind of unlock a little bit too much functionality, it introduces the surface area for air. So Bitcoin is moving a bit more slower, but yes, you absolutely can do smart contracts uh, on Bitcoin. There are applications being developed on top of Bitcoin. Interesting. Makes some sense. I, I think a lot of the issues that have happened in recent times, I think of some of the stuff happening on Binance Smart Chain, they're not so much hacks as they are people just exploiting the code. And I right. guess it, it depends on how you want to use the word hack. Uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Chris, Chris Deej, uh, yeah. he, he, I was talking about him with him about this the other day. And he's a, he's a developer and he says he really dislikes people use the word hack in these senses because what they're doing is actually just using the code in a way that it was written. Is that a hack? But, but yeah, that's right? fair. Is that's that a fair. hack? Uh, so so uh, that's not really Ethereum Ethereum's issue. That's these people that are writing the code on to use these smart contracts, right? So it's really just badly written code. Is And that's why Binance Smart Chain, who would have thought that the 500th Uniswap clone could have issues? I personally, <laughs> hard to imagine. <laughs> So, uh, so, but I, I do, I do understand the sentiment of what you're saying. I want to, I want to change gears a little bit because I have a bunch of different stuff I want to talk about in regards to mining, mm-hmm. but I want to kick it off with this. This is something that we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, before we started doing the pod, basically you think that a lot of people don't fully understand mining and they, and why, why, can't, why don't you just give us sort of an overview of mining and how it works and, and kind of break it down for us? Because I think maybe some of the older school people in crypto obviously understand this or they've been around but a lot, we have a, we have a lot we have a lot of new people in the space nowadays and i think maybe people don't understand it fully so why don't, why don't you explain yeah so uh with the advent and introduction to bitcoin it actually solved a kind of age-old computer science program that a uh, problem I, I should say that computer scientists struggled with for a long time it's called the byzantine generals problem and the way to think about this problem is think about you know Hundreds of years ago, there's no electronic communication. You have generals and their armies surrounding a city, and they need to coordinate to attack at the same time. And if you know only one or only a few attack, then they're going to get clobbered. But if they all attack in concert, if they all hold back in concert, they are uh, safe. So they pass messages around through messengers. But there's no way to really be sure, you know, what messenger is honest. How do you? Are there spies in between? So how, how do you reach this coordination? And that concept is something that I think plagued or what, what was a hurdle to developing a decentralized uh, blockchain system uh, to, to, to serve as a, a monetary system like Bitcoin. And Bitcoin solved that through something called uh, Nakamoto consensus or proof of work. And through what, with proof of work, you are 
you are doing a process, you are actually expending real world resources in order to kind of give your vote on what the next valid block is. And that's what mining is. In mining, you're doing computations. Um, in the beginning days of Bitcoin, mining was just firing up a laptop. It's, it's kind of amazing to believe that like, if you were just using Bitcoin back then, you fire up a laptop, you stop mining, you probably mine a few hundred Bitcoin a day, just like not even doing anything. Unreal. <laughs> Unreal. And as the competition around uh, Bitcoin mining grew, it is now where it is today at this kind of industrial scale. And at, at this scale, you have a lot of security because one, it costs, uh, it's capital intensive to acquire, you know, Bitcoin mining hardware to amass a fleet of Bitcoin miners. And the number one input to that Bitcoin mining is energy. So uh, going back to what proof of work is and why it's important, as a, now miners are putting actual real world resources behind every block that they say is valid, every block that they, they themselves are presenting, and every block other miners are building on top of. Um, energy is not forgeable. Energy is not something that you can fake, that you can print, uh, that you can steal in significant quantities. Um, it, it is a scarce resource that everyone competes with globally, in, including nation states and governments itself. Uh, governments do not have just unlimited free energy, they can harness it and do whatever they want with. So because mining requires these real world resources, this is the tool, this is the incentive system that allows disconnected miners all over the world, disconnected users of Bitcoin all over the world to agree on the valid state of the blockchain without having to trust each other at all. So um, that is that is the, the, the idea behind proof of work mining. You do computations, you use energy, and then you can prove to the rest of the network that you did a computation. And if you are successful in finding the right output to solve a Bitcoin block, you get a Bitcoin reward for that. So there's this incentive system that is driving everyone along. So um, mining is uh, very important for uh, the network reaching consensus on the valid blockchain. It's the process that drives security uh, for Bitcoin. And at this stage in Bitcoin's life, it is the process by which new supply is unlocked and released into the market. The, of course, that, that makes sense. And I think that the mining of Bitcoin it has been a hot topic over the last three to six months, uh, basically since Elon tweeted his concerns about um, Bitcoin from an environmental standpoint, I think there was, of course, talk about it before that too. But that really sent it into into a uh, into a fury a fury pace, and I, I think that it, it's a tough situation because I understand the value of proof of work, but now we have a rise of all of these currencies that are saying, well, we can use proof proof of stake, and we're going to get essentially a similar-ish level of security. Uh, it'll be slightly less secure, but we're trading off very little security there. And the exchange is that we have a real difference that can be made in the world from an environmental standpoint, because proof of work, it, it actually does use a ton of electricity to get this done. So, you know, I guess, I guess the, what are your thoughts on proof of work versus proof of stake? Uh, I assume that you're going to be fairly pro proof of work, safe, safe to say, but maybe talk a little bit about some of the pros and cons of each and maybe just talk a little bit about why you think proof of work is necessary. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, I'd say that right now with Bitcoin, we have an incredibly secure network. I think it's accomplishing what it is aimed to accomplish. It's open uh, and inclusive. Uh, it's trustless, permissionless, and it's enforcing the properties that make it valuable. And it, to do to do all this, it is actually not using as much energy as people think. People throughout, you know, comparisons like oh, it's using as much energy as the country of Norway. Okay, Norway doesn't actually use that much energy. You know, Bitcoin mining is about one tenth of a percent of the the world's global energy consumption, and it's creating this entirely new financial system through doing so. It's a lot less than gold mining. It's a lot less than the legacy financial system. Uh, so I, I I think what you're getting for Bitcoin, if you're looking at it as a you know what are you getting for the amount of energy that's being expended on it, I think I think it's quite a bargain. Um, proof of stake is an alternative. Uh, consensus system where essentially instead of putting up uh, energy computation, instead of proving that work and resources was expended, uh, instead coins are essentially used or put up to uh, drive consensus. So someone's putting their money behind saying, no, this is valid going forward. Now, consensus systems is a very hotly debated topic. Um, I think you can find very intelligent people on both sides of that debate. I fundamentally have a problem with a system where its wealth is used as kind of the driver of that consensus. To me, that is that that is almost the the exact system that we have been trying to escape with Bitcoin um, with a trustless finance system. And I, I think, especially on projects where so much of the supply is controlled by um, large parties, I think that can introduce a lot of problems. Um, you know, for, for, for example, uh, on Ethereum, I, I, I was trying to check into this the other day. So if I'm wrong, listen, everyone just calm down. But I believe on Ethereum that more Ethereum was introduced in the pre-sale than has ever been mined with Ethereum. So if you, when you talk about moving to a proof of stake system, you're talking about so much supply not being fairly acquired, in my opinion. Fairly, like like Bitcoin, there there was no presale. It was uh, you know uh, released uh, competitively over time. Now I, I'm I'm sure you are going to be able to find people, and I honestly look forward to hearing the other side of that argument. You have some Ethereum guys on there, or pro proof of stake guys on here that can explain maybe why that is an overstated criticism. You know, okay, actually. I, I just to talk about that for a moment. Um, so I think that a counter argument, because you're basically arguing that the centralization of proof of stake is a concern. It's, it's kind yes. of what you're arguing. I think what a lot of the proof of stake guys would argue uh, is that the centralization of the mining of Bitcoin is a concern. You have several mining players, such as yourself, you guys are one of these players, and th that have a lot of the, the hash rate of the network. What about that? Shouldn't that, shouldn't we? Be concerned about the centralization there. Don't we have some of these exact same concerns here from the proof of work arguing in favor of proof of stake? I, I, I don't think so because I think um, well, there's two key, key differences here. The 
Bitcoin mining power is difficult to come across. It's not as simple as just buying up supply. It's not like, you know, you could go buy Bitcoin, you could steal Bitcoin, you could confiscate Bitcoin if it was using a proof of stake system, and then you would have a lot of uh, influence. With Bitcoin mining, there's a lot of work and resources that have to be expended to even accumulate that power. Um, furthermore, Bitcoin mining is a lot more distributed than, than many people realize. Uh, Riot, for example, is one of the largest Bitcoin miners out there. And our hash rate as compared to the total network, and that's after a ton of the network has just left uh, with a Chinese uh, mining exodus, Riot is you know, roughly 2%. That, 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 that's a pretty small piece. And um, while, while we're growing and you know, we, we, we aim to be a big piece, we are not close to powerful enough to, to make any type of influential change, to make any type of um, uh, have any type of influence. And I think the game theory in Bitcoin is such that even if a bunch of miners were colluding together, they would ultimately fail to market forces and the incentive system that exists. It, it is not in a miner's interest to try and attack Bitcoin in any way. Uh, I, I think a lot of people look at Bit, the distribution of Bitcoin mining pools, and they arrive uh, at that conclusion. They say, "Oh, wow, there's you know, the 15 Bitcoin mining pools, and you know, five of them are the biggest. So there's just five big miners. It doesn't really work like that. M mining pools are a collection of a lot of miners underneath them, and those pools are in very tight competition with each other. The, the margins for Bitcoin mining uh, pools are not are not huge. They're charging very very small percentages." And if they started acting counter to Bitcoin's interest, I think they, they risk losing a lot of customers. And even to further uh, reduce this problem, a, a project under development in Bitcoin um, that I think should be coming out uh, pretty soon here now is something called Stratum V2. Um, stepping back real quick, the purpose of a Bitcoin mining pool is to pool hash rate together in order to reduce the variance in finding Bitcoin block rewards. And when doing that, um, it's it's the pools themselves that kind of set the block template. And then it is the miners underneath that that are all doing the work and sharing the rewards together in proportion to what their contribution was. Stratum V2 is this cool new system where that same variance reduction um, is accomplished. However, every miner can set their own block. So now, for example, Riot could be in a mining pool and we're... We'll, we'll be sharing our hash rate with other miners. However, we ourselves are setting a block. So it's almost like every miner becomes their own pool in the sense that a pool creates block, block templates. And this is going to drive even more decentralization in Bitcoin mining. It's a great advancement and it's a great tool for addressing the kind of concerns you're talking about there. Okay, that's cool. I, I didn't know about that. That's interesting to hear. I had another question on talking about the total hash rate of Bitcoin or rather the total power that's used by Bitcoin with proof of work. You said that's 0.1%, right? I believe of the world's energy. Uh, of the world's energy consumption is estimated to be, yeah, about one-tenth of a percent is what global mining, global Bitcoin mining consumes of the world's energy project production. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And, and I'm not here to, to try and really dig in on the environmental concerns, but I, I feel like we have to at least ask those questions, right? What does that look like? So I guess taking a step back, when Bitcoin started, it was, of course, using far less energy. And as mm -hmm. its price has ramped up, it has increased. 
What does that look like in a world where I think I think it would be fair to say that we both believe that Bitcoin will one day break $100,000, it'll one mm-hmm. day break $250,000, who knows where it'll eventually end up. But what what does it look like in a world where if Bitcoin at today's value is using 0.1%, what happens if Bitcoin 10xs? What's it what does it look like in 10 years from now if Bitcoin is $300,000? What does its power consumption look like then? Well, first I think it's important for everyone to understand the, the way you've kind of set the stage here. It is the competition around Bitcoin mining that that can increase its energy consumption. And I, I think there's a misconception there often. People start to talk about how much energy transactions are going to take. And people have done studies. I, I think I, someone bumped one not too long ago from 2017 that I was like, on this rate, Bitcoin's going to use all the world's energy by 2021. Well, guess what? Didn't happen because transactions don't have an energy payload. Um, it, obviously, there's some computing power that's expended to put a transaction together and process it. It's very small. Bitcoin mining, uh, the mining process itself uh, is, is what uses energy. So the amount of transactions, does, the energy consumption does not scale with the amount of transactions whatsoever. However, you're correct that the competition around Bitcoin uh, mining, as the price of Bitcoin goes up, that competition increases and there's an increased amount of energy consumption around that. Um, I think that first off, I don't believe it scales necessarily uh, linearly, in that it's not that a guaranteed increase in price is going to see a linear increase in the energy consumption as well. There's other dynamics at play here. Um, as Bitcoin mining becomes more competitive, the efficiency of the mining hardware is becoming uh, is improving quite drastically as well. Over so the, a measurement we use to look at the efficiency of Bitcoin mining hardware is how much watts of energy for each terahash, how much watts of energy is required for each terahash of that piece of hardware. So five years ago, we had the S9. It was about 100 watts per terahash. Today, with the S19 Pro, we're down to 30 watts per terahash. So it's a huge jump in the efficiency of these machines. They're using more hash rate, uh, which is the real driver of what a Bitcoin miner's power is, and they're using less energy to, to, to do so. Um, and I think, you know, we're getting, uh, th- that's a relative improvement, but on an absolute basis, we can only get so close to zero here. Um, eventually these things have to use some energy, but the, the, the point remains nonetheless that it is, um, as the, the competition has heated up to get more hash rate, that hardware is becoming more energy efficient. So I, I think that the, the growth of energy should not be that substantial. Uh, Even if it was, I think even if Bitcoin mining's energy consumption 10x from here, and let's just say it was 1%, which would be an enormous jump in energy consumption, it's possible the market dynamics of Bitcoin mining don't even allow that, even if Bitcoin was a massive success. But even if that was the case, that would still only be 1% of the world's energy to drive an entirely entirely global, open and free financial system, which I think is a tremendous value. Right. So it's a price that I think you would be willing to pay to have that that freedom and that security and, and that flexibility. Uh, I also, um, I just had a point that I wanted to make about um, Bitcoin's mining with 
the environmental concerns. And I think this is something that you said to me the other day, which was the actual mining of Bitcoin does not harm the environment in any way other than its power usage. It's not that there's some emission being thrown out into the atmosphere as the Bitcoin is being mined. It's just purely the power that is being used to operate these miners. I think that that's a, a good clarifying factor for people as well. Yeah, Bitcoin mining emits no CO2. Pierre Richard had a great tweet about this. He's like, Bitcoin mining uses emits no CO2. You don't believe me? Go up to a Bitcoin miner and measurement. It's called the scientific method. Uh, I thought I thought that was pretty funny. But um, yeah, the, the machines themselves don't have, I mean, they blow air in one end, they blow air out the other. It's, it's pretty simple. There's no, uh, nothing besides that. It's the energy consumption that uh, critics attack for Bitcoin mining. And it's unusual, um, perhaps not surprising, but unusual that this is the one thing where so many people are focused on what its energy consumption is. I think the reason for that is Bitcoin's transparency, which is a positive thing. It's a positive thing that Bitcoin has transparency, but I think this is the curse of it, is that there's enough uh, data and visibility to estimate what Bitcoin mining's energy consumption is. And no one really looks at other things in the world that way. No one looks at how much energy video games use, how much energy social media platforms use, how much energy any you know type of thing. In, in a, you, you could come up with a, a litany of items and, and um, no, no one cares about that, what the energy consumption for those things uh, are. And I, I think maybe that's because the people that are critical don't really uh, believe in Bitcoin in the first place, much less understand why proof of work consensus is, is an important part of that. So, um, you know, I think that's an important point, first and foremost, that it's unusual that the energy consumption of this one thing, Bitcoin, receives so much attention. And I think it's also important to note, you look at the evolution of mankind over the past 100 years and the insane advancements in quality of life that we have benefited from. And those advancements have come with an increasing amount of energy consumption. The world is better off because it consumes more energy today than it did 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago. This is a key driver in advancement of mankind. So um, I don't think it's something we should try to be moving in the opposite direction of. Now, when we want to talk about generation sources, hey, if we want to produce that energy in, in more efficient ways, that, that I, I'm all on board with that. You know, um, wind and solar, they are becoming more economical generation sources as the years pass. Uh, nuclear still remains to be a fantastic generation source that uh, people just can't, can't get over. I, for I, honestly, just, just, just to jump in on that, why the fuck do we not have nuclear power? At, it's unbelievable. The current methods are completely safe. It has been really decades since these major meltdowns, and we're not going to use this because people feel bad or something. So let me get this straight. We want to save the trees, but we only want to save it if it's from a Bitcoin mining algorithm. We don't actually want to save it if it's for completely safe power because 40 years ago there was a meltdown in Chernobyl. Or what is what is the, the logic uh, it's here? It's insane. It's crazy. Like, nuclear power is the solution to these concerns. Um, it is does not emit CO2. You know, I'm not an expert in nuclear power. I understand that there's some concern in how you dispose of and manage the spent uh, fuel rods, but it is, it is far better than coal. 
and it is a reliable generation source as opposed to uh, wind and solar. And to some degree, hydroelectric, but especially wind and solar, those are intermittent generation sources. They're not driving power 24 hours a day, and there does not exist battery technology to harness that power uh, at scale yet. Maybe one day, you know, by the way, production of batteries is pretty harmful for the environment. It, you know, that's what we're concerned about, um, which I, I think is, is a rightful thing to be concerned about. I'm not sure if that battery solution will ever exist. Uh, so for now, what we have as a type of battery solution is Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin miners will buy energy when no one else will. When the wind is blowing at night and no one wants to buy that energy, Bitcoin miners will mine will buy that. And then when that energy is in high demand, um, Bitcoin miners have the flexibility to shut off and no longer buy that energy. And I think that's um, I think that's why Bitcoin mining uses so much more renewable generation on average than other major industries. Uh, most recent estimates that was put out was around 56% of Bitcoin mining is renewable uh, powered. Um, it, it works. There's not a necessarily implicit relationship, but there's these market conditions that make Bitcoin mining work so closely uh, in, in concert with renewable generation sources. So that, that's another point I, I wanted to highlight here when we talk about Bitcoin and its energy use. Not only do I think the energy use is a very good value, Bitcoin uses a lot of renewable energy and actually helps capitalize renewable energy projects and make them more viable, especially in markets like uh, Texas ERCOT grid. Um, Bitcoin mining helps stabilize that grid. It helps foster more renewable uh, development. And there's a lot of solar and wind being produced at ERCOT. I thought it was interesting how during the the uh, freeze that happened in Texas, where a lot of people lost power and there was extremely high demand on the energy consumption here in Texas, how uh, the the Windstone, um, I don't know what we call facility, they mm-hmm. essentially shut down at, at different points there. And because you guys have a contract to sell, and you have a right to the energy that you can give up and, and be paid for it. And the amount of money that you guys managed to actually make back by not mining Bitcoin during those times when when energy consumption was was so was so demanded, um, I, I think that that's actually a cool kind of aspect to, to to the business that I think most people maybe not don't even understand, um, or at least I didn't even know existed. I didn't know that you could yeah. sort of have this this right to this energy that you could then sell back to the to the grid. Super cool. So uh, unfortunately, Riot did not own Winston at that time. I, I, oh, I, I take lot, it back then. Not cool. Not cool, guys. No, no but it, it, it is still very cool. Yeah. I mean, miners like Winstone were shut down for, you know, the multiple weeks. I, I, I forget. I think that period lasted uh, 15 to 20 days. Most miners were just shut down, period. First off, if you're buying energy from the grid, it is too expensive Bitcoin is great. And yeah, Bitcoin was whatever, 50,000 at the time. It's not enough to justify $9,000 a megawatt hour. You're just done. Um, Now, if you've had secured power, you have the ability to sell it back. So that's how miners like Winstone act as, you can think about it as a virtual power plant where they have not produced their own power, but they have secured that power through long-term power purchase agreements, um, which is a risky venture you're committing to buy power no matter what for five, seven, 10 years, depending on the length of your agreement. And um, Bitcoin miners can kind of, they are more comfortable taking that risk because they just are planning to mine Bitcoin that whole time. And they can use that power 
If they don't want to mine Bitcoin, if market conditions call for it, they can instead use that power and sell that back to the grid. Um, I, you know, obviously there are market forces that incentivize that. It is, you know, when 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 energy demand gets tight, it is just a clear cut decision, you know, to sell power back. But uh, you know, I like to believe a lot of Bitcoin miners are, are honestly trying to do the right thing as well. If you want to be successful at a large scale uh, in Bitcoin mining, in especially places like Texas, you need to be an ally of the community. You are much better off being an ally to the community than just coming in saying, I'm the Bitcoin miner, get out of my way and going to work. A lot of people tried that in 2018 all over the United States. I don't think any of them are in business anymore. You having being a good corporate citizen working with your community and supporting your community is, you know, not only good for yourself, but it's good for your employees and the surrounding citizens and residents as well. So even, you know, let, let, let's put the economics aside. Bitcoin miners, um, I think, are, are, are trying to do the right thing in the communities they're in. I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin space want to do the right thing. And maybe even a lot of the, in the cryptocurrency space as well, a lot of people want, want to do the right thing. And I think that there is sort of a hatred of corporations and bureaucracies and people telling you what you can and can't do with your money that I, I do think that there are I do think that there are, are a lot of good people in the space that want to see the right things happen. Um, and so that does make sense. By the way, it's also funny to me. I didn't realize the acquisition of Winston was that recent. It just shows how fast time flies in this space. And three months is an eternity. I remember, so at the investor day, they had, you guys had a riot. I remember talking to some of the other people that owned shares or whatever in the bus. And uh, they said, I said, oh yeah, I bought some shares four years ago. And then someone was, oh man, old school. Wow. All the way back. (laughs) Oh yeah, man. Way back in the 2017. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It it really moves quick. It it, it does move quick. Um, and we we gel so great with that team that um, it, 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 it's hard to even realize that transaction closed less than two months ago. Wow. We announced signing of definitive documentation, I believe it was April 7th. The transaction closed May 26th. So it's been a little less than two months and it's just everyone basically same team already. So good. one of the reasons the transaction was so attractive. Yeah, good, good guys. Impressive facility. Yeah. That was fun getting yeah. to go check it out. Although... It was weird because you said you're coming to Austin and going to Winstone. I thought, oh, this will be a, this will be an easy drive. Two hours to get out there. It, it would have been faster to get to San Antonio than go visit the Winstone plant. Man, that was ridiculous. So, so, but th- that that's um, that's how Bitcoin miners find opportunity, though. Like they Bitcoin miners, agnostic to where they operate, they don't need to be near a major metropolitan. They don't need you know Clearly. super. Yeah, they have the (laughs) flexibility to kind of go out and see where is there underutilized renewable infrastructure? Where is there a surplus of power? Where's, you know, oftentimes renewable uh, energy that's stranded somewhere in the grid and Bitcoin miners can go out there. So that's why uh, Rockdale can can be a little bit of a trek to get to, but it's worth it once you get there. Uh, It it certainly was. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about this China mining ban, because I, I saw this tweet. I wish I remember who tweeted it because I, I always like to give credit where credit is due. But someone tweeted, how many times can one country fucking ban Bitcoin? I believe that was the tweet. <laughs> I feel like I've seen China bans Bitcoin. I, I don't even... It, it's a normal part of the cycle to lose 5 to 10% of your value in Bitcoin because China banned it again. 
what is the actual status of Bitcoin? What happened with this ban? Is it is it for real this time? Can can you explain to me some of the past China stuff and what happened this year or last month? You're right. It's absolutely comical how often there is some sort of a news story that like, oh, you know, the Chinese government is doing this, cracking down on this. And, you know, I don't understand Chinese politics well enough to understand. It's always like some different entity that is now stepping in. It's like the the People's Bureau of this. And they're the ones coming in and, you know, we're we're cracking down. So what what they've done is, so I, I remember at the start of the 2017 cycle is when they just basically shut down exchanges. And it's, uh, at that time, what Bitcoin was like, I don't know, a, a, around a thousand and everyone was all worried. Oh, my God, they banned exchanges in China. How can Bitcoin possibly go up from here? Yeah, spoiler alert, at 20,000 that year. Um, so uh, and then I think there's been different types of uh, other types of services re- relative to Bitcoin in China have, have gotten a lot of government scrutiny. But the one thing that remained was often Bitcoin mining. And I think for the same reasons we were just talking about is, is why Bitcoin mining remain. Renewable generators like the fact that these Bitcoin miners would come in and buy um, the energy when there was a surplus amount. A lot of mining in China was actually, not all of it, but a good chunk was seasonal. The miners would physically pick up and move to the major hydroelectric regions what they called the wet seasons when there was so much water flowing and there was so much hydroelectric power, more than there were buyers for. Bitcoin miners could kind of come in, they would deploy, buy it. And then when that season ended, they would go back to wherever they were before. Um, so I, I think generators really like that. Um, ultimately, the powers that be in China decided that that was a bridge too far eventually. They just said, we, we don't need Bitcoin mining. And it's actually kind of crazy to think that such a major industry like that, uh, I, I know many people probably don't think of Bitcoin as a major industry, but it's an energy that an industry that has uh, a lot of capital deployed. China was the kind of birthplace, I would say, of the industrialization of Bitcoin mining. And we got to a point this year in May and June where it finally reached a serious level of government action. And they basically just said no. And I think the order flowed down to all the different provinces and those provinces said Bitcoin miners are out. And it was certainly for real because we can we can always estimate what the total amount of network-wide Bitcoin mining hash rate is. And it has dropped tremendously over the past two months. Global Bitcoin mining hash rate peaked at around 180 exahash as an estimate uh, in spring. And in June or the beginning of this month, fell to an estimated 80 exahash. So what that implies what? is- Sorry, what's an exahash? It sounds like a made up uh, word. Uh, it's, a, it's a measurement of hash rate. You know, So a hash is a single, uh, is a single pass through the, the SHA-256 algorithm. So that's like your one guess. When you're doing Bitcoin mining, you're guessing inputs to try and get the desired output. That's one hash. So then you have you know, a hash, uh, and then that scales all the way up to you know, an exahash is I don't know how many trillions of guesses per second. It's a lot. Um, so that, that's, that, that's how uh, Bitcoin mining uh, power is measured. So it reached 180. So essentially, what that change in uh, measurement implies is 
over half of the Bitcoin mining power shut down as a result of this uh, Chinese crackdown, which is kind of basically in line with what everyone always estimated, that China was 50 to 70% of the global Bitcoin mining uh, hash rate. That was used as a criticism a lot of time in Bitcoin. It was you know, said, oh, these Chinese miners, they control so much. You know, China just has control over Bitcoin. Well, it kind of plays into what we were talking about earlier. That doesn't actually mean that they can control a whole lot, um, but it was a criticism nonetheless. And now that mining has exodus from there, um, I, I think that particular critique is quite mitigated and hash rate is getting a lot further distributed. Um, I So, you know, I feel bad for the Chinese miners that had to go through this. Like, I can't imagine having a hundred, you know, a business tens of or hundreds of millions of dollars in capital deployed and the rug is just pulled out from underneath you. Um, that's awful. And I think, you know, credit should be given where credit is due. These guys spearheaded the 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 age of industrial mining for Bitcoin. Um, however, I think there's, you know, coming out the other end of this, there are benefits and selfishly for miners in North America who are unaffected by this, it's uh, quite an amazing opportunity in Bitcoin mining right now. It's just hard to imagine the government stepping in and making your job illegal. Isn't that right? <laughs> April 15th, <laughs> 2011. <laughs> I, just, I, I just can't imagine that. That's just, it, it's, it must be a communist China thing, right? That's got to be, good old land of the free would never do that. That was, that, yeah, that was unbelievable. So you're right. You know, we, we, we've experienced that. You just wake up one day and it's like, yeah, everywhere you do business or most, the, the, the most viable places you do business are now gone. For those of you guys that don't know, we're talking about Poker's Black Friday, where they essentially enforced the the Wire Act uh, and yeah. and confiscated, I think, seven hundred million dollars worth of, of funds, and all the major sites shut down. It was not a good day for poker players. Great. I don't think didn't like actually. No one ultimately went to jail for any of that. I think there was like one guy that did like two months in jail. He was a payment processor after all of that theater. I, I don't know if anyone went to jail or not, but it would not surprise me if rich people managed to avoid jail time. I'm just, I, you know, it's not not a shocking story. It's one of the things that I think people really hate about governments is the unpredictability and the fact that this is more of an American problem where when you change politicians, oh, new president, okay, totally new everything. We have different policies everywhere. Total, oh. Uh, new Senate. Okay, now it's more, we're in a mixed bag on some d- domestic stuff. Oh, new president again. Now we have a totally different international. So I think that the unpredictability is, it's an issue. And, and it's tough when you have businesses that are in these areas that are legal. And then the government says, eh, nah. Okay, I have, I have for these these mining companies, I have hundreds of millions of dollars in mining equipment. Yeah, nah. Nah, <laughs> just, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> uh, what, so what happens? Do they have to sell their equipment? I know there's a really high demand for mining equipment. Are these are these Chinese companies selling off their equipment on some kind of secondhand market, or is there uh, what, what I, happens? I, I, all the equipment that community in in a lot of ways is so disconnected. I think from the North American community that it's hard to really know what's going on there. I think there's a number of things. Um, first, there were a lot of areas in China that had very competitive energy costs, and because of that. Um, there were miners that could use a lot of older generation equipment and still be profitable. Without that opportunity anymore, I think that hash rate is just gone. It doesn't make sense to try and relocate older equipment to higher a price power because it's just not going to remain competitive enough to make whatever you need to do to make that work, you know, economical. 
Um, from there, I think we're just kind of seeing the the, the, the miners just exit us a, a lot of different directions. Um, Kazakhstan is one of the more likely places that a lot of miners are going to. Very um, nice. It, yeah, exactly. They have cheap energy there. It's close. You know, they can get there by truck, I believe. No air or shipping, uh, ship freight is required. Um, moving to places like the United States is actually, while it's a great environment for Bitcoin mining, particularly in Texas, we still have that tariff on imports from China. So it doesn't, it's really tough to swallow a 25% tariff on your CapEx expense to get in here. So more of what we're seeing is older equipment, I think generally retiring or you know maybe being sold on the secondhand market somehow. And it's more of Chinese miners relocating what their outstanding or future orders are gonna be. So miners are, competitive miners at least, are always focused on expansion. That's really the name of the game is scale. So. A lot of miners have purchased orders in all the time to expand their fleet of mining hardware. So the, the, the biggest outcome of this, I think, is those shipments being directed elsewhere instead of going uh, domestically in China. Do you think there is any worry that something like what happened in China here could happen in the U.S., where let's just say that the whole save the rainforest, we need to stop mining Bitcoin narrative really gets a hold of of, of things and you get some people in power that are probably very liberal and want to protect the environment. And this becomes a hot button issue and poor people are angry. And all of a sudden they try. Is this something that you could see happening here in the U.S.? I, I, I think in the Bitcoin industry as a whole, um, there, there's always regulatory risk like that. And, and mining is just one segment of the industry that is faced with that kind of risk. Um, I think the federalist system that we have in the United States helps mitigate that somewhat. So we have states that are very friendly to Bitcoin mining, um, states like Wyoming, Kentucky, Tennessee, friendly to Bitcoin mining, and then, you know, uh, saving the best for last, Texas. Uh, Texas is a very pro-business, pro-Bitcoin mining state. Um, politicians there get it. They understand what it does for the power grid and what it does for communities there. And that's why you have... Uh, even Governor Abbott coming out and saying, uh, we want Texas to be a Bitcoin mining mecca, which is kind of crazy to think about after being around Bitcoin for so long that like you have the governor of one of the largest states in the union. And he's like, we want to make this the place for Bitcoin mining. So you're like, wow, that's so cool. You even know what Bitcoin mining is, much less you want to make it the mecca. So uh, I think picking jurisdictions um, for mining is is becoming pretty important for the risk that you're highlighting. I think I think more likely than not, that type of regulation finds its way in on the state level. Uh, this past legislative session in New York, uh, a bill was proposed to just ban Bitcoin mining for three years in New York. They were just like, we're putting a moratorium on, we need to kind of figure this out for the next three years. I think there were some other motivations behind that. While that bill failed, someone try to introduce it nonetheless, which is a, is, is a little concerning. Um, so I, I think that it, jurisdiction, uh, jurisdictional uh, decisions are, are very important for Bitcoin miners. And that's part of the reason why there's so many Chinese miners that are now looking at Texas. So they've experienced the worst of regulation and they've kind of assessed the political landscape and they're kind of narrowed in on the place where they believe is the safest. And, you know, out in Rockdale, there were Chinese miners that just like showed up at the city hall and they're like, take us to wherever the Bitcoin mines are. 
And so they call up Winston. They're like, we got some Chinese miners here. They want to know where the... So Amazing. It, that, it, it's crazy to think it happens that way. And it's, it's such a cultural a disconnect, I think, that there's not enough of a line of communication to even get it. So there's people that literally just show up on the ground, like knocking on the door. Hey, we're here for the Bitcoin mining. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, Texas, Texas is, uh, I, I think that they really handle things the right way here. They have very pro-business stances. And of course, you're going to have some trade-offs with that. But uh, I think overall, the, the, the kind of idea of Texas is pro-business. And mm-hmm. if you have a business, it's a good place to be. And, and I think that it makes sense to to embrace that as a business that's able to take advantage of those opportunities. Yep. So uh, moving away from mining and and talking about sort of the media narrative of uh, Bitcoin, I saw you on CNBC a few weeks back, and I feel they were really trying to kind of kind of lay into you on some of the environment environmental stuff. I thought I thought you handled, handled yourself well there. What are your Thank thoughts? You. Oh, on- Bloomberg, Bloomberg, though. Just sorry, Bloomberg. My bad. Don't, don't want to throw CNBC under the bus. Yeah, this, this particular interview was Bloomberg. Yeah. My bad. They're kind of interchangeable to me, but sure, yeah. Bloomberg, fair, fair. Yeah. Uh, I guess my question is, how do you feel about the the way that the media talks about Bitcoin these days? I think some of the environmental stuff has died down a little bit. I, I have to throw in the obligatory Elon Musk comment of what's going on with Elon Musk. What did you think about what he had to say about things? What are your... Actually, maybe let's talk about Elon Musk first here. So what, sure. what are your thoughts on Elon Musk's knowledge about Bitcoin and some of his complaints, because when he had the environmental complaint, I think a couple of months ago, the first one that sort of set off the series of of talks about it, 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 he had a stance that seemed a little bit primitive, which seemed surprising from someone that seems so intelligent overall. I also think it's interesting the, the the way that Elon Musk up until that point was revered and then boom, insta everyone hates Elon. Get the fuck out. No one likes you. You're just stealing money from everyone. I, I, I think that I think that the actual answer is Elon is a very smart guy, but he's gonna have takes you don't like, and sometimes that can not fall in line with, with what you want to have happen. But I think what was disappointing for me was it seemed like a fairly uh, it was. It, was, it didn't seem like a nuanced take that he had about Bitcoin. What, what was your? What were? Your, what's your take on the things that he said about Bitcoin? So I, I think you know, especially I, I didn't watch the whole conference that took place yesterday with with, with Dorothy. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Jack Dorsey and uh, Kathy Wood and uh, Elon Musk, but I saw the highlights of it and kind of reinforced what I already seem to think and know about Elon is that he's a big believer in Bitcoin. He he, he actually is. Um, Maybe his comments back then around mining, because it was something that maybe he hadn't looked a ton ton into yet. It's you know kind of okay that someone didn't necessarily know that. Um, we it, it was stemming from those tweets that uh, Michael Saylor was able to put together a call with Elon Musk and a few of the large North American Bitcoin miners, which was a great opportunity to kind of talk about what we're doing and um, you know shed some light about what we know about the industry and. Uh, Bitcoin mining's relationship with renewable energy. And I, I have to tell you, you know, fr- from that conversation, he was very receptive to what was going on. He, he It's a guy that just likes to learn. He, he wasn't, we, we weren't in a conversation where he was trying to drive it, where he was trying to make his point known, where he was trying to argue. He really just appreciated everyone's time sharing what they know. And, um, you know, the kind of takeaway from was, he's like, hey, I think you guys should, you know, work on getting this message out there because 
it's a good one. And that's something that we all kind of do individually in our own companies anyways. We're all, we're, we're not just advocating for our operations, our financial results, our, our companies itself. A lot of what I do is just talk about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining in general. That's most of my media engagements, I feel like. Not, not as much discussions about Riot itself. So um, going back to Elon, though, and so especially the comments we heard yesterday, I, I really do think he was a believer in Bitcoin. I don't know why he you know, tweets some of the things that he does. I, I, I think he's kind of just like, he's a big figure, but I think he's also just like a human being with a Twitter account with a massive platform. And sometimes he just says things to kind of see what happens. I, I'm, I'm just guessing. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about like, I mean, you have it to a lesser extent. You have a big platform. Like the amount of engagement you get from just like tweeting something out, it, it, it's 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 a strange power and like a strange like little thing that you have there. Well, I'm always happy to be compared to Elon Musk, but <laughs> I, I think we're on a little bit different different scales here. Um, I'm kind of hoping to just maybe maybe be a Dogecoin in in the in the Bitcoin world of Elon. No, anyway. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, when you see the response. It is it is interesting, and it makes you realize that what you say can have an impact on people. And particularly, yeah. you know, I, I try to I try to pick subjects that I'm more knowledgeable about to have really strong opinions. Right? That's why I tweet about politics. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but but you you do have a lot of impact with the words that you say. And I guess it's tough when you're in a space and then a huge figure has comments about it that seem that seem kind of unfair about what you're doing and it's changing the narrative of the way that the world talks about your industry. That kind of sucks because you want, not everyone's going to, so maybe Elon in his head, he's thinking about this, he's thinking about that, but not everyone's going to have the ability to take in all these factors and view them fairly. They're going to just take this tweet at surface level. And that's why it's usually tough on Twitter to get a lot of nuance into your tweet. And that's why the best tweets tend to be very polarized and, and kind of aggressive. And I, I just think that it warped the conversation about Bitcoin so strongly towards this killing the environment. And we're talking about 0.1% of the world's energy here, right? And As now, we've established, yeah. And, and, now, and now the whole conversation is Bitcoin. So do you like killing trees? What, what's your take, you know? You're cool with global warming then. Okay, yeah, no, you strike me as... And, and, it, and it, it just tried to merge together sort of those subjects when... It's such a small part, such a small part about Bitcoin and and the importance of Bitcoin. I actually think that there's a bit of a different point though why things like Doge are succeeding today, and it really is just transaction costs. And this is this is another question I I wanted to kind of ask you about. When I talk to younger people, younger people are overwhelmingly interested in crypt cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. I got a haircut the other day, and. The, the woman that was cutting my hair was farming on pancake. We were both in the same auto. No. Yes. No. Yes. That happened. Oh, she's, my. She's farming on pancake while cutting my hair. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, what, but she said that, oh, she didn't even look into Ethereum because it's too expensive. And, and you think about people like that. I'm not saying that there are millions of hairdressers who are getting into the DeFi scene, but for younger people, she was in her mid 20s or whatever. For younger people, it's kind of cost prohibitive to get into some of these currencies, and and Bitcoin can kind of be in that in that area. I, I'm I'm sure that you know price for transaction price per transaction 
moves around a bunch, but there are certainly points where, hey, can you afford to, to spend $10, $15 to send your Bitcoin to another address when you're dealing in $100 increments? No, you can, that's ridiculous, right? And one of the reasons why we see some we see things like Doge succeed is, and I have other young friends, oh yeah, I did Doge because it was super cheap to be able to send the money to my accounts or, or my, to my wallet so I could actually have the Doge. I think that we kind of have a little bit of an issue of the cost of some of these transactions. And I, I think that's sort of one part of my question. The other part of the question is when people see something that's valued at $32,000, they think, oh, I can't even afford one of that. I'm not interested. And you can call that dumb. You can say they shouldn't think that. You should say that that's not how it works. And you can explain to them the rational viewpoint to the end of time. But the reality is if that's how people feel, and that's not a that's not a one person thought that, that is a serious, uh, serious feeling within the people that are trying to get involved in the space. Oh, I can't even afford one. I don't, I'm not interested. Do you, do you worry that that kind of prices people out and, and it could potentially hurt Bitcoin's ability to grow down the road? Yeah. So when you started um, talking there, I, I think the latter part of what you said about this, the absolute price of the asset is what I think a lot of people are thinking about when they say Bitcoin's expense, at least in my you know anecdotal experience, when I talk to people about cryptocurrency, that's what I what I get. You know, Bitcoin's too expensive. Ethereum is too expensive. But Doge, you know, Doge is uh, what whatever it is now, eighteen cents. That's got some real upside. It's going to a thousand dollars. So that is uh, you know, like you said, flawed thinking, but it's thinking that exists nonetheless. And um, it's I, I I mean it's it's something that's had an effect in legacy financial markets as well. Like stocks become very expensive. Tesla did a what was it? I believe a five to one split a, a year ago or whatever it was. Um, it, 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 similar things happen there. Um, so and in Bitcoin to try and mitigate that, people have trying to been push other narratives or other me- not narratives but measurements of Bitcoin. So common thing people talk about is sats. You know the value of a sat. You know I got ten sats, three hundred sats, fifty sats, ten thousand sats. You know what have you. That I think is taking off in the Bitcoin community a little bit. It's becoming more and more discussed, but not broader than that. Dude, when I hear someone say Sats, I know that this guy, <laughs> this guy's been fucking with Bitcoin for a few years. You know, no, no, no noob is no pancake about farmer. No, no, no pancake no. farmer at the hair salon is talking in Sats. No shot. Also, if you're talking in Sats, the the transaction price to send is still going to be high. So. It doesn't do you any good to, to pay however many sats to pay five x the amount of sats to send one fifth the amount of sats. That it, it's not it's not a very relevant. I know what you're saying, and I think it it, it can be a, a good term. But if I hear someone say sats, I know that they're not someone that needs to be worried about sats, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Good point. So um, I, I'm not saying that completely. You know, mitigates the problem because I think it's at the end of the day those things aren't called bitcoins. So to newer people, it's hard for them to really wrap their head around it. So yeah, I would agree that that the large price of Bitcoin creates a little hurdle for people to kind of understand that it's okay to own a fraction of a Bitcoin. Um, that, that that's the way it is. Uh, as, as far as transaction fees go, Bitcoin trans Bitcoin has transaction fees as a result of competing space for that security of the blockchain. And the fact is, is low value transactions do not need that level of security. 
So that's the concept. That's really the motivation behind the Lightning Network is to have this second layer on top of that base layer that offers strong security, not the same security. You're not going to do a million dollar transaction on Lightning, but you know you can buy coffee. You, you do not need the security of a worldwide uh, proof of work consensus system to buy coffee. Uh, adoption of Lightning is is moving. Uh, the the usability, the, the user interfaces that have been developed around this, I, I think are making strong advancements. It's becoming easier and easier to people to use. And I think that's kind of just a, a, a growing point in the industry. It's just, it's just part of learning how to use this technology further. And I think as people understand that, they understand these other tools for transacting on Bitcoin, then these concerns around transaction fees uh, be, become less relevant. And you can kind of think about it, um, think about like the internet in the 90s. It was not easy to use. There was lots of problems. It was not easy to get online. The experience wasn't amazing, but things worked themselves out over time. That's how technology advances. That's how technologies and new products grow. So I, I, I look at Bitcoin and the usability of, around Bitcoin as kind of in that area right now. I mean, the, not, it's not just transaction fees either. It's the custody of Bitcoin. Custodying Bitcoin is not easy for most people. Most people are buying Bitcoin and keeping it on Coinbase. Um, that's not the ideal way to use Bitcoin. You should control your keys for yourself. But that is a um, technical hurdle that's a bit too far for some people right now. So I think that is you know, why I see Bitcoin as still having a, a lot of opportunity, because we are early on in the types of user experiences to make it easier. And it will become easier as the industry and the ecosystem continues to grow. I got a couple last questions here for you that I want to get to. Uh, the, the first is I want to talk about the mining rewards once we actually have all 21 million Bitcoin. Obviously, mining rewards reduce over time and there's an effect on the mining, right? Because there's going to be less mining rewards to, to compete for. As those are halved and as we approach 21 million, what happens to Bitcoin mining and what happens when we actually do get the 21 million Bitcoin? Can you talk about sort of the end game for where Bitcoin mining goes once we get to sort of that juncture and if that's something to be concerned about or will the community have to vote on something? Because with Bitcoin, you need a really high approval rate to pass anything on the Bitcoin network, uh, which is why it's so secure, right? You need, I think it was a 90% signal approval to be able to- well, so for, I mean, that was just an activation mechanism chosen for Taproot. But so oh, okay. but what, what you're describing, you know, to change that type of- um, that consensus item, the, you know, the coin cap would, it would require, it would be a hard fork. So it would essentially require a hundred percent approval of, any, of anyone who wanted to see on the system. And that is, I think, so far against what Bitcoin is that that's just something that is, just, is never going to happen. That 21 million coin cap is very key to the value proposition of Bitcoin to making Bitcoin sound money. Uh, but you know, let's talk about what happens to mining over the course of the supply schedule. So we've gone through a number of halvings. For the listeners who don't know, the halving is when the Bitcoin mining reward that uh, miners get for solving a block is cut in half. 
When Bitcoin was first introduced in 2009, there was a 50 Bitcoin block reward. You found a block, you got 50 Bitcoin. So that's why we were laughing earlier. You fire up a laptop, you're just banging off 50 Bitcoin here and there. It was probably a great time. Sometimes I wonder, like, was I mining Bitcoin back then? And I forget, like, that would be pretty, (laughs) that'd be pretty cool. Um, But so then in, in 2012, it halved to 25 Bitcoin. In 2016, 12, uh, uh, 12 and a half. And then in May of this past year, have to six and a quarter Bitcoin. It's interesting that typically these halvings have resulted in uh, very positive Bitcoin uh, spot price markets in the time period uh, following a halving. So this is going to continue. The next halving will be in uh, approximately May 2024, and the Bitcoin block reward will have to 3.125. So while this is this this supply um, release schedule is tightening up. What we have seen, though, is that the, the total value, at least in dollar terms, of what's being mined has been increasing. You know, today, 6.25 Bitcoin is worth quite a bit more than what 12.5 Bitcoin was worth, you know, before that. Yeah. So the, 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 the actual value of what is being mined is increasing in, in dollar terms, which I understand that's the world we're trying to escape. But as some other relative point of measurement, it has been increasing over time. Um, and I... I you know, I suspect that trend will continue, but eventually we'll, we will run out of Bitcoin block reward. That subsidy will end. At that point, it is solely transaction fees that are driving the security of Bitcoin mining. It is solely transaction fees that Bitcoin miners are competing for. Uh, luckily, what we're seeing is, I mean, I, I should say, luckily, depending on your point of view, what we're seeing is these transaction fees have been increasing over time. They... Uh, used to be negligible part of the block reward for miners, and they are becoming an increasingly and increasingly bigger part of the block reward, very significant for miners. It actually used to be back in the day, there were some pools that just didn't pass on transaction fees to miners because they're like, you know, these are just so small, they're not worth it to figure out, we, we just keep them. Uh, that would not fly <laughs> anymore with anyone. So as the competition for that 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 base blockchain, the security of that, uh, of the security of doing the transactions on the base layer of Bitcoin, as competition for that increases over time, the transaction fees um, denominated in Bitcoin at least should increase as well, and the value of that Bitcoin helps offset the declining value of the block reward. And I so I said, you know, it depends on your perspective because obviously that implies transaction fees are going up if that's what's going on. Uh, well, uh, par- partially true. I mean, with the advancements that's been being made to Bitcoin, we're able to fit more and more transactions in a single block, and that's driving fees down over time. Um, Taproot with uh, signature ag- aggregation is a great feature for limiting the size of transactions and thus limiting someone's fee. Um, but I think the trend with Bitcoin is going to be this this choice of chain, um, I should say this choice of layer that comes in depending on the type of transaction you're doing. I don't think, and let's talk way down the line when the block reward is really running out. I don't think in 100 years people are buying coffee or doing any type of typical commercial transaction on the base layer of Bitcoin. There is Lightning Network and you know whatever sees that whatever crazy things that we haven't even conceived of yet, those are going to be the layers that are being used that drive security and drive functionality of quick, um, cheap, and uh, f- 
finalistic transactions without having to pay the fees of the main chain. So I think the market, uh, the fee market is very interesting. I think it's you know going to evolve in a very interesting way. But from what we've seen so far, the the, the systems are working as really projected 10 years ago. At the beginning of Bitcoin, when it was worth nothing, you had posts from Satoshi Nakamoto and Hal Finney talking about how is Bitcoin going to work. And the idea was, well, the block reward will decrease over time and transaction fees will offset that. That was the idea for the beginning. We're seeing that play out. Hal Finney from the very beginning of Bitcoin, well, users probably aren't going to use the base layer transaction, a base layer level for all types of transaction. There's probably going to be second layer things that are being invented. Boom, here we are today with Lightning. So uh, we're still growing. We're still living through this experience. But I believe Bitcoin is working out as intended. Very nice. Very nice response. Uh, you know what? This last question I, I think is irrelevant. So we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and, and call it a sesh here. Jason, thank you for coming on today. And I always it's always great getting to talk to you. Uh, I'm sure I'll see you again in the near future. Mm-hmm. Uh, any any last any last things you want to talk about here? Any 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 shout outs or anything you wanted to let the good people know what you're up to or anything like that? Uh, well, I mean, first, I appreciate you having me on. It's cool to get to talk. You know, we, we've been friends for so long now. It's gone from uh, playing heads up in the streets on Poker Stars, Full Tilt, and what have you, to now doing a completely different industry. Um, so it's been an exciting journey with you, Doug. And um, and, and likewise, Jason, an exciting <laughs> one with you. Quite quite the run up, man. I mean, I mean, I, I think I think I think I was backing you for what five ten like seven years ago, something yeah. like that. I mean, quite quite the run up to go from there to where you are now. Uh, you, you've done an awesome <laughs> job. I, I'm thank you. Yeah, I'm very happy for you. Quite a journey. Quite a journey uh, indeed. Uh, I, I guess the only thing that I would end with was just saying, um, you know, very uh, privileged to be working with Riot. Um, I love what what Riot's doing, uh, increasing the United States footprint in Bitcoin mining is what kind of our corporate strategy is. Of course, we're trying to drive financial results, but in doing so, we want to create the backbone of the infrastructure for Bitcoin mining in in the United States that follows all the adoption of Bitcoin that we're seeing here as well. Kind of the way we look at it is if there's so much adoption for Bitcoin in a given area, we should have the underlying network infrastructure driving consensus in that same jurisdiction as well. So uh, it's amazing to have the opportunity to do this, to be a believer in Bitcoin for so long. And my job is to essentially try to accumulate as much Bitcoin as possible is uh, very inspiring and fun. Uh, very Grateful to have such a great team at Riot and Winstone. Uh, Everyone's so aligned in what we're doing. Everyone so motivated to work together to grow this company. And uh, I'm, you know, very excited about what we've been doing and more so like what we're doing with Bitcoin in general. It's just crazy to, to look at where Bitcoin is today and think about, you know, where I started in Bitcoin. And today there's companies buying hundreds of millions, billion dollars of Bitcoin, MicroStrategy owns how many billions of Bitcoin on its balance sheet now? Like it, it's just it's just crazy to see the things that are happening. So um, if that's how the last several years have gone, I I can't imagine how the next several years are going to go. It's exciting, and the unpredictability of it makes it even more exciting because I I 
I firmly believe that Bitcoin will increase in value over time. I've said that for so many years now. And when people get concerned about its price, I, I, I just say the same thing. Look, over time, there's only going to be 21 million of these. And some amount are already gone in various fashions. As long as there are people that want to buy them and an increased interest in Bitcoin, they are going to become more expensive because they're simply not going to be more available. And yep. so if you, if you believe over time that people will believe in what Bitcoin is offering, which is secure money that is backed by, you know, backed by science and computers and, and, and an algorithm that you know what it's doing, it is transparent. If you believe in that versus having your money printed by the government, then over time, these will become more valuable because people will want them. And if that's true, this is just going to become more expensive. And look, like mm. it's not a super nuanced take. I'm not, I'm, it's not something that I have to break into, you know, some modern day economic theory to, and, and really dissect. It's just simple. There's only going to be so many of them. And if people continue to want them, it will increase in value. So I feel very strongly whenever we have upturns and downturns, you know, look, like we're down to whatever 32, 50% down from peak. We're still up so much in the last year. Year over year is nuts, right? It's it's nuts. It's, it's what four or five x year over year. Yeah. I guess I guess it's just don't get lost along the way in, in how Bitcoin is doing today or tomorrow. It's it's about the the long run and where it will be down the road. And I think that's sort of the the philosophy that you have to have when it when it comes to looking at Bitcoin. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. That's going to be a wrap, guys. Thank you for joining us today for the Doug Polk Podcast. Once again, if you are not subscribed, make sure to subscribe on YouTube or follow on major podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple, iTunes, whatever it's called, because I'm not on Apple. Uh, I should probably have these a little more memorized as I'm doing this plug. CastBox might be a thing. I'm not sure. Are there other places where people find podcasts? We're probably on there. So make sure to follow me there, and I'll see you guys again in the near future for our next podcast.